Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Pragna Shetty, Plastic Surgery Residents with The Resident Review. Pragna is a second year resident from the University of North Carolina. Today we're joined by Dr. Lynn Damitz to discuss advocacy in plastic surgery. Dr. Damitz is the Chief of the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at UNC. She completed her general surgery and plastic surgery residencies at UNC before going on to complete a breast and aesthetic fellowship at Nashville Plastic Surgery and additional fellowship at Charlotte Plastic Surgery. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Damitz through the ASPS Legislative Advocacy Committee in the Plasti Pack. Dr. Damitz uh, is also currently serving as the Vice President of Health Policy and Advocacy for ASPS. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So would you mind just starting off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got involved and interested in advocacy? Sure. So as you've mentioned, I've been in North Carolina for quite some time. Um, After I did my training, I came back on faculty at UNC in 2000 and have been here ever since. I would say my interest in advocacy primarily began um, kind of in two ways. One was um, I became part of the ASPS Pathways to Leadership Program, where they had a significant portion of the time dedicated to understanding advocacy and becoming more involved in advocacy, which uh, I have to say is kind of where I, where I got the advocacy bug. And ever since then, I've been much more engaged and involved. Um, prior to that, I had some interest in advocacy, primarily because I'm from New Jersey. And in about 2004, in New Jersey, a cosmetic, ta- cosmetic tax, or what a lot of people call Botox, um, was placed on all aesthetic procedures. And so I kind of heard from people that I know um, kind of the issues with the cosmetic tax, which is a 6% tax on aesthetic procedures. And kind of had talked to a number of the people in New Jersey who had been kind of advocating for plastic surgeons and our patients and fighting to to kind of um, to eradicate that. And that ultimately happened, Governor Christie, back in about 2012, 2013 is when it finally went away. So kind of all of that timing came together to to really pique my interest in advocacy around that time. Great. It seems like it's a pretty tight-knit group for at least what I've observed. The people that have gotten involved early on seem to stick with it and I know it's one of the pathways, you know, for leadership within ASPS and, you know, Dr. Greco will be our upcoming leader and that's kind of the path he's taken as well. So it seems to be kind of a common trajectory, at least for, you know, folks that are interested in society leadership, at least. And I think it's important because I think we're on top of all the current issues. So I think we kind of have to kind of be ahead of things. So I think a lot of people who are interested in advocacy are, it's, it's not one of those um, kind of positions or you're not involved with committees where, um, you know, you may not meet, but once or twice a year, I mean, truly I get emails daily or multiple times daily with, with issues, whether it's federal issues, state issues. So I think it does make it a little bit easier because I think we're, we're kind of connected on almost a daily basis with members and issues and those sorts of things. So. And then along those lines, you know, we have every year residents are encouraged to join committees but what is, would you say, be the role of the Legislative Advocacy Committee? Is it mainly national, state issues? Um, what is, I guess, the um, kind of agenda of that committee? Yeah, so I would say it's actually all of the above in that there are basically three arms, if you will, to the Legislative Advocacy Committee. One is a focus on federal issues. The second focuses on state issues. And the third focuses on regulatory issues. And so each one of those, those arms has a, a vice chair and a chair um, who kind of organizes all of that. 
I think the Legislative Advocacy Committee is probably one of the largest, if not the largest committee within ASPS, because the, the goal is to really have representatives from all areas of the U.S. So the goal is to have at least one representative from each state um, so that we really can, can promote the issues and understand the issues that are affecting all of the members. Um, and that's why I think it, it works so well. So I think you know, having the meetings where we all kind of keep up with what's going on, not only federally, but also in individual states, where there are certain states where oftentimes issues will begin in certain states and then spread like wildfire throughout the U.S., um, I think really that the the value of the, the Legislative Advocacy Committee is that it does allow for a voice for all the members, um, whether they themselves or through their representative. Yeah, and it does seem like a fairly active committee. You know, I've been participating for the last year, year and a half or so, and I'm always impressed. Even the Zoom meetings are, you know, people are just very eager to share what's going on in their state and how they can help. Uh, so I've enjoyed just being involved from a resident perspective as well. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed getting to know about at the fly-in was the Plasti Pack. Um, Dr. Damitz, do you mind speaking more about the Plasti Pack and why it's important? Sure. So the Plasti Pack is kind of our largest voice for plastic surgery, whereby the PAC or Political Action Committee has been uh, present for about two decades. And the whole goal is to really try to focus on being able to raise funds so that we can support our congressional leaders in a way so that they can promote our uh, policies or policies that would positively affect plastic surgeons, uh, plastic surgery as a whole, um, and our patients. And then one of the kind of black boxes to me before I, I got involved was, okay, so you give this money and then what happens to it? You know, are you just giving it to like friends? Is it very political? Like how, how does the board decide where this money goes? So actually it's a pretty um, intense system of scoring. There's a proprietary, proprietary scorecard that really scores each of the people that we consider based on their voting record, as well as their bill sponsorships. So really it's to focus on those congressional leaders who we feel um, have promoted and helped us with policies that, that are, are going to um, positively affect plastic surgeons and our patients. Yeah, and these seem to be very dynamic scorecards. I'm always impressed with the staff and how they keep them updated and very detailed. So it's, there's a science to it. I like to tell people it's not just uh, a random kind of assignment of money. Yeah. And I think that the, the amount of time and effort that goes into it is, is tremendous um, from a staff perspective. And then I think the fact that, you know, our committee meets six times a year to really review all of these. And there is oftentimes very passionate and dynamic discussion about individual candidates um, I think the other thing that I always like people to appreciate and, and some of the complaints that I, I hear are that people always assume that it's not representing them. Um, the goal for the entire pack is for it to be bipartisan. And I believe last year, uh, for example, 49% of funds went to Democratic leaders and 51% uh, went to Republican leaders in Congress. So with that, the goal is to be bipartisan. And we always like to remind people because it's bipartisan, it doesn't, you know, our whole goal is to really promote policies that are, are going to positively affect plastic surgeons, plastic surgery as a specialty and our patients. So it may not be that everybody agrees on everyone's platform, but the focus is on that which applies to plastic surgery. And 
oftentimes we'll, we'll say to people as well, you know, if it's bipartisan, expect to not be happy with the decisions half the time. Yep. <laughs> because, no, uh, I think that's that a really, it's an important point. And thanks for emphasizing that. It's a question I get, you know, sometimes as well. So uh, important to keep in mind, we are representing medicine and plastic surgery. Um, as Pragna mentioned, we recently had a legislative conference in D.C. where we had the opportunity to meet with several physician uh, members of Congress. So I wanted to briefly go through uh, some of the issues that we discussed and advocated for at the conference. Uh, so the first is ELSA, which is the Ensuring Lasting Smiles Act. And this has been a bill that we've been advocating for for at least a few years now. Um, and just overall, the bill would require that all health plans would cover medically necessary services to treat congenital anomalies or birth defects. And the problem is that while most states require insurers to provide coverage for congenital anomalies, several health plans routinely deny claims for any oral or dental procedures, um, such as those that are often needed in cleft care under the pretense that they're merely cosmetic procedures. So this bill would ensure timely access to all aspects of care for children with congenital anomalies. Uh, we recently had some action with this bill. It passed the House uh, this past April and is now with the Senate. Uh, Dr. Damitz, any updates that you've heard about kind of where this bill stands? I haven't heard any updates recently. My hope is that it continues to move. We've been certainly working on this for the past few years, and I think this would really you know, really provide uh, much more access to our patients. And, you know, the examples that I'd like to give are, these are the things that, you know, again, as you mentioned, dental care, things like speech pathology, speech therapy, audiology, all of that that goes into you know, the care of these patients, but is not deemed to be part of their insured uh, benefits. So I think this would really, really be important for our patients. Yes. Fingers crossed this gets uh, past the finish line soon. Yes. Uh, one of the other bills that we were talking about at the flying was Improving Seniors' Timely Access to Care Act. Uh, this is a bill that would increase transparency, strengthen accountability, and reduce the burdens of prior authorization for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, this would be through establishing an electronic prior authorization process and minimizing the use of prior auth for services that are routinely approved. Yeah, this is thankfully something we probably, Bogdan and I don't have to deal with yet, but I hear whispers. Of it, so, yeah, I'm you sure will. soon enough. Um, so this is a new one this year, um, but I think, as Pragna said, hopefully we'll lessen the burden on physicians and the staff so we can spend more time taking care of patients. The next one is one that I, I always like to talk about. It's the Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act. So the aim is to increase the number of Medicare-supported GME primary care and specialty care slots by 14,000 over the next seven years. And the problem is there's a growing physician shortage, and half of this shortage is coming from uh, a deficit in specialty physicians. And additionally, even graduates from U.S. medical schools are going unmatched. And I'm sure Pragna and I have examples of folks from our medical schools who you know, aren't even able to match into plastic surgery or other surgical specialties. Um, and although there was a small increase of a thousand spots last year, this really isn't nearly enough to support the future demand for physicians. Um, so I think this is an important issue, you know, when residents come to the fly-ins that they can really speak to, you know, their experiences. And, um, you know, it's a, a tough issue because we're always trying to cut costs and this is a, a Medicare expenditure. Uh, so it's a tough balance, but I think something that's very important. Dr. Dams, anything to add about this bill and how you've kind of advocated for it? 
Yeah, I think we've been talking about this for quite some time. I know every time we've gone to, to Capitol Hill, this has kind of been a, uh, an area near and dear to many of our hearts. Um, I would say that um, I find a lot of this too in discussing this with our, our, um, our leaders is that part of the, our goal when we go to these fly-ins and such is to really educate people about what plastic surgery is. So, you know, everybody understands the need for primary care, but really sitting down and saying, you know, why specialty care is needed, what specialties we're, we're discussing. Uh, and particularly a lot of it is education about what we do as plastic surgeons, because I think so many people think of plastic surgery as what people see on TV or in magazines, when in fact, we all know, you know, our, our breath is so much greater than that. And there are so many different sorts of procedures that we perform or care that we provide for patients that a lot of these people that we're talking to in Congress really have never really understood or thought about. So I think, you know, a lot of it when we talk about not only just the need for, um, for more residents, it's also really focusing on why more residents in plastic surgery is so important. Great. Because we were lucky enough to speak to I think five or six physician members of Congress. And I think they maybe got it more than others, but even so most people we talked to, you know, last year at the fly, it wasn't just physicians and just that education of, Oh, you do more than uh, cosmetic surgery. So mm -hmm. it's true. And Dr. James, I might have you take the next one. This one's a little bit complicated, the no surprises act. And we're in the implementation phase of this and kind of going through the regulatory process. Do you mind explaining to our listeners how we are advocating for implementation of this bill? Sure. So the, the No Surprises Act is certainly a, a kind of black box of, of, of uh, kinds of different details, but um, I would say we, we certainly have gotten here because of issues with kind of egregious billing and patients being responsible for the balance of a bill where they're responsible for significant uh, amounts of money that they were not aware of. And that's kind of how we got here. Um, with that, the whole goal of the No Surprises Act is to maintain oversight of the regulatory process that now has been established for implementation to ensure that there's a fair, fair balance in reimbursement for not only the providers, but insurers. And right now the feeling is that the insurers are, are kind of running the show, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. and to really provide more balance. The law would establish that process for independent dispute res resolution. So not taking median in-network rates for things like you know, Medicaid, Medicare, what have you, but really being able to negotiate rates um, so that we're asking that all of the independent dispute criteria um, should be weighed equally, uh, including the payment for physicians, uh, for specialty physicians, for the amount of care that's provided so that this would not just be the median in-network rate uh, being weighted disproportionately, but favor all insurance carriers and favor physicians who have, uh, for example, specialty experience, years in practice, uh, what have you. So, so really to make sure that it's a level playing field between the insurers and the providers rather than as it was established uh, to really be that which favors the insurers. Very well explained, much better than I could have uh, could have done. I, I hear it multiple times, but it does take some repetition. So thank I, I you. Like sometimes we get so far in the weeds that sometimes it's like, how? Yeah. What is the goal? The, the, the overview. Yeah, that was great. Um, the next bill we talked about was improving access to workers' compensation for injured federal workers act. Um, this is a bill that would allow for NPs and PAs to treat independently, um, including diagnose, prescribe, and treat federal employees 
for workplace injuries or illnesses without physician involvement. Um, so something very relevant. Yeah. And this is an issue that, from at least my observation, is normally addressed kind of on a state level. And this is one of the bills that just happens to be a federal bill, which is, I think, why we're uh, why we discussed it at the conference. And I think it's important to always frame this type of discussion as a patient safety issue, which it is. Um, you know, NPs and PAs have their scope of practice and have a certain amount of training, but you know, as pregnant, I know medical school is pretty long. We're in the middle of a, a six-year residency program. Um, so it's a different extent of training than the NPs and NPAs have. And so this bill, I think, is oftentimes framed as we need more access either for, you know, in this case, federal employees, or sometimes it's primary care. And that's kind of the, their foot in the door. And then sometimes it expands from there. Um, but these, I think are becoming pretty common on the state level for mid-levels to be gaining a lot more independent practice. Is that what you've observed, Dr. Damitz? Yes, I would say that um, we've seen this on the state level for some time. And I think, again, as you've mentioned, framing it as a patient safety issue is always more important than really it being kind of a turf war, so to speak. Um, we all know the training that, that we experienced and, and the experience that we have and the, the difference in training. And I think that, as you mentioned, a lot of the independent practices meant to basically address uh, limited access or the rural areas or, or basically to increase patient access to medical care, when in fact, the reality is that the grand majority of people who are advanced practice providers aren't really going to these rural areas or, or engaging in uh, primary care or what have you. It ends up being independent practice for elective procedures. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so the last issue that we'll just briefly mention is fair physician reimbursement. So we've asked Congress to stabilize Medicare physician payments in 2023 and beyond and to hold physicians harmless from upcoming Medicare cuts, which could result in plastic surgeons facing cuts of up to 6%. And the problem is that physicians are already facing financial strain due to COVID-19 and may ultimately not be able to financially accept Medicare patients, which would further limit patients' access to care. Um, you know, that's something we talked about at the conference as well. And uh, 6% seems like a, a pretty hefty cut. So do you, what do you think is uh, on the horizon in terms of Medicare cuts? I would say we, we seem to be fighting this every year because it's down to the wire. It needs to be addressed by the end of December. So I find usually as we get to about end of November, beginning of December, we really start to ramp things up as far as really working toward this. Um, I know a lot of physician groups have been um, happy when the cuts weren't, for example, 6%, but maybe 2%. Um, you know, ASPS has been one of the groups who's been pretty um, solid in their stance that, that we're, we're um, not really advocating for a decrease in cuts, but not, not having cuts in general. Um, so that's been a little bit different than some other, other groups who are, you know, happy when it's just not a 6% cut where we've kind of dug our heels in the sand and said, we really don't want any cuts. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah. It always seems to be like a very last minute thing. So mm -hmm. we'll see in the coming months. Um, so folks often ask me, you know, how can residents get involved in advocacy? And I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the LAC as well as Plasti Pack. 
And I always tell people, you know, it's really critical that residents are involved because we're advocating for issues that will affect our future practices and really the future of medicine. And so while maybe some of the topics that we discussed may seem a little bit abstract, things like scope of practice legislation, physician reimbursement, insurance coverage, these are really going to shape the practice of plastic surgery in coming years. And it's really important that we have a voice on the Hill, because if, if we're not there, really, no one will speak for us. And there are other groups, such as you know the NPs and PAs that are definitely there. So I think it's uh, critical that we show up. And it was wonderful to see so many residents and fellows at this year's meeting. Um, other ways to be involved or to join the LAC, there's I think every spring the applications open and it's uh, a wonderful committee to be involved in. It's very active and it's very easy. Donate to the Plasti Pack to be a resident member is only $25. And there's speaker series throughout the year. Um, you'll have the opportunity to listen to various senators and, um, and congressmen and women. And then there's also an annual reception at Plastic Surgery, the meeting, which is always fun. Um, getting involved locally, I think, is a great way to start. So reach out to folks in your state or from your residency program if you know that they're involved. And then Pragna, I know this is your first year at the Fly-In, so thank you so much for coming. This year, they did offer some scholarships as well, um, so keep on the lookout for those. And then you can apply to be a Plasti Pack resident ambassador, uh, one of the two for the next couple of years, which has been a fun kind of inside look into, um, you know, how we decide who gets uh, the gets contributions and has been a, a wonderful experience. So, Pragna, what did you think of your first fly-in? It was um, it was a lot, a lot to learn. Um, you know, I'm a second year, so my whole world has kind of been the hospital, and so it's kind of nice to you know get a bigger picture of like what's going on that affects my patients outside the hospital, um, and then made me realize how much, you know, Dr. Damitz and the other attendings, you know, are doing behind the scenes. Like I hadn't even thought about prior authorizations prior to this meeting. You will. <laughs> <laughs> I know people like talk about like codes and like prior auth. I'm like, yeah, I just kind of show up and operate. So it sounds fun. <laughs> exactly. So I thought it was, um, I thought it was really interesting. You know, I have an interest in public health, um, particularly health policy. And so it's, really interesting to see this on kind of like a federal level and then think back about how, you know, even little hospital policies that we can get involved with can, you know, impact patient care. Well, wonderful. I'm glad it hopefully was an impetus to stay involved and hope we can see in future meetings as well. Uh, So Dr. Amos, just a couple of last questions for you. You know, out of all the issues that we spoke about, what do you anticipate will become or remain ASPS's top priorities, let's say over the next five years or so? Like, where are we going? Yeah, I would say a lot of them are similar themes to what we've discussed in a more on a more granular level. So I think ensuring insurance coverage for our patients for reconstructive procedures and not just one, for example, you know, not just the cleft lip or the cleft palate repair for congenital abnormalities, but all of the care that's required after that. Um, I also think a lot of our priorities, similar to what we've been facing on the state level, will be with regard to scope of practice. Um, And that can be advanced practice providers, NPs, PAs, naturopaths, optometrists, dental hygienists, dentists. It's not just a single group. It's coming from all directions. So I think that's something to to keep an eye out for. 
Um, I think also truth in advertising um, that we've you know, certainly really promoted board certification in plastic surgery because we know there's the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery, which is very different than the American Board of Plastic Surgery as far as who can join, who can be, um, you know, who can be boarded, so to speak. And a lot of uh, advertising is just board certified and doesn't really specify even whether it's the board of cosmetic surgery, it could be, you know, board of radiology or, or what have you, that there are a lot of people who are involved in particularly aesthetic procedures that I would expect. And I think that's very important. I think also um, the, the GME issue that we've talked about, that's going to continue to be an issue until it gets resolved because there's just a greater need for medical care over time. And I think that, you know, as people are living longer and uh, we just really need to maintain the specialties um, capacity to take care of people. And again, it's a patient access issue. I know when we talked about things, it was something, um, it's kind of staggering to me. I think it was that there's one plastic surgeon in the United States for something like 43,000 people, which it was amazing when we think about the places in which we live, or you think about, you know, areas where you consider like plastic surgery capitals, if you will, you know, yeah. Miami, Dallas, LA, New York, all those places. Um, but really, from a national perspective, we, are, we really need to, to improve the number of people we're training so that we can take care of our population. Um, I think those are going to be the big issues, as well as what always seems to, to, to kind of come to the top is, is reimbursement, making sure that we're fairly reimbursed for the work that we do, because we're doing the work, whether it's breast reconstruction, trauma reconstruction, burn reconstruction, really just making sure that that people are fairly reimbursed for the amount of work that they put in for our patients. So those are going to be it. Yeah. Well, a lot of work to do. Um, but I, I totally agree with everything you said. It's I'm sure similar at UNC, maybe even more so the Duke, we have, you know, people coming from all over and patients from, you know, rural North Carolina, West Virginia, and just, uh, there really isn't great access and people wait a very long time to see us. And especially right now for breast reconstruction, I know patients are waiting, you know, sometimes up to a year before they can have surgery. So there's definitely a need for more plastic surgeons and, um, you know, very true when people say they're board certified, patients don't really know what that means. And they say, Oh, board certified. And it's not, uh, what Prognan and I will go through the same process. So, <laughs> It's definitely uh, a less rigorous process. <laughs> yes. So very important issues. Any final advice for, you know, our listeners or a lot of residents and fellows of um, ways to get involved in advocacy that we hadn't mentioned? Now, I would encourage everybody to get involved, ask questions. If there are things that you see, you have concerns about, just want to learn more about, uh, please reach out. I think, you know, certainly reach out to me. I'm happy to to kind of either answer questions or point you in the right direction. If it's, you know, a desire to get on a committee or become more involved or um, just to you know, answer, answer questions about advocacy in general, I would highly encourage everyone to come to our next advocacy or legislative conference next year. Our hope is that we'll be back on the Hill, which is always fun when you can, you know, actually in person go and, and, you know, speak to members of Congress and their staff and really feel like you're, you're, you know, in DC doing, doing the, the, the deed as far as being the voice and the, the face of all of these issues. So um, I highly encourage people to get involved, but please reach out if you have any questions, if you want to just come by and, you know, audit a LAC meeting or what have you, everyone's always interested in having particularly residents become involved because, you know, you're our future and we really want to make sure that we continue the, the momentum that's been built up over the years. 
Thank you so much, Pragan. Thank you, Dr. Damitz, uh, for joining us today. This was very educational and hopefully inspired uh, some more participation from our listeners. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having us. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.